Thank you for checking into this edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment and remind you that our mission is to become an internationally recognized hub where creative forces from across this great planet can showcase their talents for the world to see and hear. Now, your role in this endeavor is to keep coming back, subscribe to the CEP on your favorite podcast streamer, and go to Apple Podcasts and give us that much, much needed five-star rating. For these things, we are eternally grateful to you. And it, it's easy to create a story. We always, and I'll bring the program for this, right? We, we latch on to the negative because it's the negative that helped us to survive. If we didn't pay attention to those negative things, we died. Mm-hmm. So we're really, really adept at understanding all of the negative things. What I will flip and, and flip the narrative on here is what's the best thing that could happen as a result? And if we can focus more on that, instead of saying, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, the worst thing that can happen is always that you're going to die because you can ultimately get there through any <laughs> any path, right? Sure. But the best thing that could happen is, okay, well, I do terrible and I learn something and I have an empathetic moment and I get coaching and I feel better about myself. And, I, you know, there's a thousand different pathways that you can take, but we're immediately drawn to what's the worst case scenario instead of saying, wow, I, things could go really well. And then what does that look like? The Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Now for this episode, Colt and I get on the line with Rebecca Heiss. Rebecca is a biologist, keynote speaker, author, founder of Iquity LLC, and she wants you to become fearless. During this episode, you will hear Rebecca give us some surprising insight into the world of crows. Also, she talks about the evolutionary necessity and utility of fear and how it has developed over the years, the fight, flight, or freeze response, how our internal and interpersonal language affects behavior, and much, much more. So be sure to check out all things Rebecca Heist at RebeccaHeist.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-H-E-I-S-S.com. Follow her on the socials and get yourself on the way to a life that is fearless. Now, without further introduction, here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to yet another riveting edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. I am James, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Colt. As always. And with us on the line today, Miss Rebecca Heiss. How are you doing today, Rebecca? I'm doing great. Thanks, guys. How about yourselves? We're doing okay. We're under quarantine. I don't know if you had any awareness of that, but yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, what? Wait, I, what's going on? I hadn't... No, strange. I, I know, right? No, we're doing good, though, man. We're... Uh, good staying healthy so far and i'm blessed for that and what what more could i ask for most important thing absolutely so thanks again for coming on rebecca we are super excited to have you on i know you've got a great story to tell you've got a lot of information (laughs) that i cannot wait to educate our listeners on i can't wait to be educated myself on it's one of the things one of the great things about having a podcast, we get to have guests like you on who have all kinds of awesome information. And it's like uh, it's like going back to school a lot of times for me because I get to indulge in this information and you, you come on and you just you share it with me. And so <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks, thanks, don't thanks don't again. build me up too much. Honestly, uh, the reason that I love doing this is that I'm constantly learning. You know, I, I think it's hilarious when people come to me and they're like, you have the answer for this. And I'm like, no, I'm just out there speaking like everybody else. So I appreciate you uh, you doing these yeah. podcasts because if, if it's not the episode that I'm on, I'm listening and learning from all the other people. So thanks. Absolutely. The goal for Colton and myself was always to add value to, to listeners, to find people out there to, uh, to enrich. And we can't do that on our own. We have to have guests like you. And so once again, thanks for coming on. So Absolutely. Why, why don't you start off by telling us about yourself, uh, who you are, who's Rebecca Heiss, where you come from, how you got started, and even where you're going. Sure, sure. Who am I? Um, man, that's a deep question. How, how long do you guys have? <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm a biologist by trade, so I, I hail from the upstate New York area um, around Ithaca, which is where most of my family still is. I live now in Greenville, South Carolina, so we're up in the south now, and come here via University of Memphis and Spain and all kinds of other trajectories in um, throughout there. So I started, I guess, as a, as a teacher. I was a biologist, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. Um, started studying evolution and human behavior, got really interested in that, uh, and 
did a, a master's degree um, first and then decided, what the heck, I might as well keep going with this because I don't know what else to do. Um, and I had zero intention of doing a PhD. I was actually in Spain doing research on crows. Very long story there. So for 10 years, I was one of the world's experts in crows. I feel I feel yeah. like we need to dive into that now. Can we, we do that we now? Have a, yeah, we have, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. So I I um I started studying crows because they're a great model for human behavior and they're a lot easier to study than humans because they don't lie. Right? True. Um and so you can study their hormones really easily and get access to blood, which again, blood doesn't lie. It's, you can see cortisol levels, stress levels things like that very easily in these birds. So I was climbing 100-foot tall trees, grabbing nestlings out of the trees, bleeding them, putting them back, marking them, banding them. And we had a population of an entire city that was banded, marked, and we knew every single bird as an individual. Wow. So, <laughs> so that's kind of a fun fun background. Wow. <laughs> yep. And then, you know, speaking of, of crazy pandemics, um, West Nile virus hit. And in 2003, we lost 50% of our population in a single year. So like it was it was wild. I had never intended on studying epidemiology or anything along those lines, but you ended up studying the virus because your whole population was dying of it. So um, yeah, that was my very strange background, um, but studied crows for over ten years. I had no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> Which it's, it's interesting. A, it's, a fun though. Fact. it's interesting it's a fun because fact. we're going to talk about being fearless here in a little bit. And uh, you were climbing 100-foot trees, grabbing crows and, and getting their blood? <laughs> yeah. So this is there is a really good lesson in this um, in terms of how we adapt to adrenaline because I will never forget. I was in a tree, and I was probably, I don't know, like 100, 120 feet up. And it's, you know, I'm at the very tippy top where crow's nests are, right? Uh -huh, and right. I'm swaying in the breeze. I'm just, like, chilling. I'm laid back. I'm like, ah. And I suddenly was like, dude, I got to stop climbing because this is when people die, right? When you become that fearless of something that you should fear, right? it's problematic. So um, I, I actually stopped climbing after that. Wow. Yeah. Huh. yeah I could see that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I got a little bit too relaxed, you know, I was just trusting my gear a little too much, trusting myself a little too much. And it's like, this, so, is, this is a real fear we should have. So. so when the West Nile hit, that's kind of what pushed you out of studying crows because of the population decline? Um, no, actually I, I was still in the very much in the middle of my research when that hit. Um, what ended up happening is I, I stayed on and worked with NIH um, for a while. I, I had zero interest initially in studying the virus, but again, you just fall into that um, and stayed working with them. I, I started teaching at a local high school um, to pay the bills because, you know, biologists and teachers, we make massive salaries. Um, <laughs> right. So it was kind of like juggling, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life because I was still really young at the time and uh, and ultimately ended up taking a position um, in Spain to study uh, to study crows there for a while. Um, and then uh, the the economic crisis hit and everybody ran out of funding. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? Uh, and a, a friend of mine called me up and was like, hey, I, I need a postdoc to come work on stuff in my in my lab and I was like cool that's great except I don't have a doctorate and he was like well great in that case I need a doctoral student to come work on stuff in my lab and I was like yes I'm getting my PhD <laughs> so um <laughs> so again not like a very very uh squirrely route to getting to where I am but I ended up um at the University of Memphis in a great physiology lab and, and studied hormones and behavior and ultimately understood or had a better understanding. I still don't understand them. I don't think anybody does. But have a, have a little bit of a better understanding of how hormones facilitate some of our behaviors um, in sometimes positive and sometimes negative ways. Mm. I feel like I can't let this so crow thing I, go if, so yet. Can Cool. I love it. I see your face. <laughs> it's yeah. great. No, it's good. It's no, captivating. I, well, lots of stories to be told there. Well, my, okay, here's where my curiosity lies. What is the difference between crows in Spain and here? Major differences? Not major. Um, the, the crows in Spain are carrion crows, um, so close relatives of what we see here. We have American crows and fish crows and northwestern crows. Those are the only three um, sort of subspecies of crows that we have here. Um, carrion crows are, are in Spain, but they're also cooperative breeders, which <laughs> I'm going to nerd out on you guys for a bit. 
So there's very few what we deem cooperative breeders in the world um, where the offspring from one year hang around and help raise the offspring from the next year. It's like having siblings, right? Mm. And humans, we think that's normal. But in the biological world, like if a brother comes home a year later, the parents are just as likely to kill them and see them as an invader as they are to welcome them home. Right. So it's a really weird system. Um, and it's kind of unique to, to humans and some primates and a few birds. So um, that's, that's what makes them so special. That and they're super smart, like scary smart. <laughs> I had no idea we were going to talk about crows. It's <laughs> awesome. Actually, though. I... I didn't think we were talking about crows either, but it, it's slipped in there. This is, de- this is definitely a new record for James because he said I had no idea at least seven times so far. <laughs> we're not even I ten minutes in yet. That's good. That's good. That's that, that's that means I'm doing my job. Yeah, we're learning. Once again, once again, I'm learning. That's correct. This is an educational experience. Not there only have I learned about crows, but cooperative breeders. That's a that's there you a, go. And it's also interesting that you're so interested in behavior. What, why are you so interested in behavior, Rebecca? What, what draws you to want to know more about the way that things and then people behave? I mean, who doesn't want to understand why they do what they do, right? Um, I, I think I would have been just a straight-up behaviorist, except that, um, to me, it's too easy to put your own spin on why somebody's doing what they're doing. Right? Mm. It's really hard to separate out what you think is happening from what's actually happening, which is why I relied on you know blood data or hormones because, again, your blood can't lie. It's going to tell you what's going on. Um, so I've always sort of been fascinated by, by understanding myself better. And let's be honest, it's just a selfish, selfish pursuit. Um, I think we all want to understand ourselves better. And this was my way of going about it and saying, why do I do that weird thing? Um, and and then, you know, applying that to other people and saying, well, if you do that weird thing, too, there must be something more going on. Uh, and that's been a fun discovery process. And trust me, it's continuing. <laughs> Is he frozen? I don't know. It looks like it. James, are you frozen? <laughs> Did you leave me? Either that or he's doing, being, playing a statue really well. Either that or he's testing my observations of behavior <laughs> and I'm now interpreting what you're doing. So it's, my it's, spin on this is you're having a freeze response. Like, Oh, he's back. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, I'm, I'm I, okay. I'm freezing pretty badly. Um, that's hence my statue, like uh, <laughs> statue. <laughs> we, we can talk about the freeze response. That's a legit, that's a legit response. So yeah. I are like we it. going Let's there to fight, 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 or freeze? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and I appreciate that you know that this is this is one of these rarely talked about and so important um, pieces to talk about, which is you know under stress we typically say fight or flight, but that third F mm-hmm. is super important, um, especially when it comes to some of the behavioral processes that we have um, in the office and in the workplaces these days. Uh, yeah. When you're seeing the Me Too movement go through the roof and sexual harassment claims go through the roof, part of the reason for that is because we're not talking about the freeze response. And um, so many women experience, 70%, in fact, 70% of women experience the freeze response. So what that might look like is if I'm getting hit on and I don't want to be hit on. All right. And that's not, a, that's not, I'm not really communicating, <laughs> right? Like, oh, yeah, right. And I may uh-huh. be inside screaming, holy crap, get away from me. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But if that's my response to stress, and I'm not blaming you, gentlemen, because males, you're, I mean, the signal that I'm sending is like, how you doing, right? Like, I'm not blaming you for responding that way. And right. yet, when we understand some of the underlines of our behaviors, when we understand that in, how our instincts sort of interfere with what we consciously want to be communicating, we can better understand the relationship that we can have with one another. Absolutely. And I find it very interesting, well, at, at most times in today's society <laughs> ever, I guess, but Today's society, human behavior, period. And, and it's, it's a tired subject, but the toilet paper issue that we had, what, you know, the behavior <laughs> and the mindset yeah. that was driving the, the sudden hoarding of, of toilet paper and the ongoing hoarding of toilet paper, just that in general. But you, you mentioned you, uh, Me Too as well, the, the Me Too yeah. movement. Some of the, the drivers behind that, the, the behavior and the behavior that drove that behavior um, I find increasingly interesting about how we humans are uh, reacting to each other. And I know that social media is a big driver of this because of the proliferation of information 
and, and the way that we it's just at, at the touch of a button it's it's in our hands constantly now that that we can see each other that we can hear each other that we can interesting those kinds of behaviors that are happening I'm such a good lead in though I have so much to talk about with that I, I get on rants and I, I I go blank I have no idea what I said so we'll just have to uh, <laughs> we'll just have to keep rolling but I was curious did cool. you say Rebecca that your um, degree your your doctorate was in uh, biology is that correct yeah yeah, yeah. it's in okay. stress physiology yeah so I mean, when I, when I tell people, um, or when you ask me about my background, I'm like, I don't, where, where do you want me to start? Like, I'm a stress physiologist, kind of. I'm an evolution human behaviorist, kind of. I'm a keynote speaker. I've got a tech company. I'm putting a book out. I, I don't know. Like, I, I try and dabble in everything. I'm, I'm no expert in any one thing. I can promise you that. Anybody can do anything that I do six times better than I do. But I love playing in a lot of different spaces. Okay. So how... What made you want to become a keynote speaker? That that's increasingly interesting to me. People that get up and they they speak, they talk, and that's, yeah. that's how they provide for themselves. What kind of uh, what was the impetus behind that? Well, I mean, you're kind of doing it now, right? You speak for a living, and it's kind of great. Um, I think the the short version there is that I had always been doing that, right? I was a teacher, I was an educator, so I was in uh-huh. front of an audience all the time, lecturing and and speaking. Yeah. Um, and I had an incredible opportunity to give a, a TEDx talk um, and gave it and was like, Man, this is awesome. Like, I love I love the prep. I love thinking about how to effectively communicate a message. Um, and I I was approached by somebody in the audience who wanted me to come speak to his company. And I was like, oh, that's the thing. People this is like what people do for a living. Oh, man, I'm all in. <laughs> so it was it was very um serendipitous um was not again like most of my life was not a planned route um but super super glad that i made that jump interesting and we're going to talk about fear here in a minute but i know that you know that not everybody is cut out for that kind of work not not just anybody could get up in front of people and speak like even if they can do it in some uh smaller groups or whatever if they get it on stage and they shut down and see i disagree yeah yeah, I disagree. I think everybody can do it. I think mm. I have practiced doing it. I think other people have practiced doing it. Um, I think it's all about sorting out those fears. So that's exactly it. That's a that's a fear, and that's an important fear because the fear that's underlying that is rejection, right? Oh my gosh, somebody's going to see me up here, and I'm not going to do right, and they're going to kick me out of the tribe. What? <laughs> like the tribe? What? Right. That's an ancient story. That was really, really important. You didn't want to get kicked out of your tribe of 150 people that you relied on to survive. But today, so what? You go up and you make a fool of yourself. A, people are going to be empathetic. B, if they kick you out of the tribe, great. You don't need them in your lives anyway. C, the people that are in the audience that want you to do well are cheering you on no matter what because they don't want somebody to flounder up there. Nobody's rooting for you to do that. So when you start to recognize that the internal voice, that internal fear is all about an ancient pathway that was meant to keep you alive, you can start getting over it and saying, okay, I'm not going to die, right? It may be uncomfortable, but did you die? No. So then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you seek other forms of discomfort, and you realize, oh, this is uncomfortable, but it's not a tiger leaping at me, right? It's not an immediate threat that our bodies think it is when we have these stress responses when we're up there going okay and you're breathing heavy and oh my gosh they're gonna kick me out yeah you're all right uh-huh. but but also we're in an age where <laughs> when you're standing up on stage talking to people you're not just talking to those people in the audience you have a social media age mm-hmm. now too so i'm sure that i mean does that not strike any more fear in you yeah whole nother whole nother level right i think one of the things that um that I have to keep in check all the time is this voice going like, this is going to come back to haunt you. (laughs) I really actually feel bad for anyone who's on television as much as they are. Um, Like a lot of the politicians that like any little sound bite, I have things slip out of my mouth all the time. And by the way, everybody does because it's human. All right. That out of context, I'm like, Oh, that's going to sound so bad. (laughs) Like I didn't mean it like that. I hope it's not taken like that. Please you know, assume positive intent here. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is a little added level of pressure. Um, and again, this is one of those 
our brains aren't built for this world. Our brains are built for a world where there's not audio recording, there's not video recording. And so we're, we're being intimate and, um, and truthful with the people around us, um, that are going to help us to survive. But again, now our tribe is eight billion people. Um, and your voice and, and video is recorded for eternity. That's, that, that's not something our brains are prepared to handle. Right. Yeah. And you alluded to the, the utility for fear. Uh, if there was a saber-toothed tiger and it was jumping at us, we had that response, right? We had to fight or, or fly and, and then, or freeze right? <laughs> and, and get eaten. But that, yeah. that, that, that fear, has a, it had a utility, especially then, because it was a natural instinct for humans to survive. You either did that or, or you definitely died. Nowadays, it seems like we still have a very strong fight, flight, or freeze response, but the fear is different. And mm -hmm. the fear oftentimes is more irrational. Like you said, we're going to get kicked out of our tribe if I get up here and I bomb in front of this group of people who right. I am speaking to. So it, it seems like the, the, the fear is still there, but it's changed. What can you tell me about the utility of fear? And yeah, how no, that has evolved. Yeah, you, you nailed it on the, on its head. I mean, I think the fears actually haven't changed. The fears are the same. The context has changed. Mm. So if you think about our fears, they, they all fall back to uh, the fears that really were useful to help us survive those contexts. So it's fear of rejection, like getting kicked out of the tribe, fear yeah. of failure, you know, fear of, of irrational things like snakes, still the number one fear pulled across America, number one fear as of last year. Maybe it changes to viruses this year. We'll see. Are you but sure that's irrational? Snakes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think I don't think that is irrational. Fear of a virus is legit, like completely legitimate. But fear of snakes, that is irrational because you are literally nine times more likely to get struck by lightning and die than you are to die of a snake bite in America. So completely irrational. Except it's a really rational fear when you remember that you have an ancestral brain. And so right. our ancestors wandering around the span of trying not to die, those little slithery things were really important to pay attention to. So yeah, all of our fears are still pretty irrational, but they're rational given the context. What's shifted so rapidly is the environment that we're living in. So again, and you, you think about this biologically, like culture, massive increase in changes. You know, the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago, we had this incredible shift in technology and population and all of this growth. Well, biologically, that's four generations at best. Right? At most, we're talking four generations. Biology just doesn't operate that quickly to change massive, important, like, don't die fears. Um, and so we're, we're really stuck with a brain that is, that is trying to keep us alive and truly today, it's preventing us from fully living. Hmm. So I guess in essence, though, evolution, evolution taught us that if you get kicked out of your tribe, you lose your strength in numbers. And so you could possibly die. And so yeah. we, we, we carry with us the, the possibility of getting kicked out of our tribe by bombing in this, in this lecture, this talk or whatever. And yep. therefore, our brain still tells us that we're going to die. Is that, is that basically... What we're yeah, that's saying. that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And so being able to sort out and rationalize with your brain, which is not as easy as it sounds, because, it, I mean, you literally have to overcome 200,000 years of evolution in your brain screaming at you going, you're going to die, right? They're going to kick you out and you're going to die. Right. Because, yeah, it's in that land of, of our ancestors, it's sparse, it's dangerous. If you're not surrounded by your tribe, you you will. Yeah. Um, and now you're in the environment where you have 8 billion people commenting, liking you on Facebook, not liking you on Facebook. Now you're trying to figure out your social status. That is a huge stressor for us, right? Trying to understand where we fit in the world um, and, and sort of compromising with our, our instincts and saying, okay, we need all this information. Well, do we need all this information? You know, are all 8 billion of these people as important as the people that are directly in my life? And unfortunately, our brains have no real mechanism to say, like, you, you aren't real. I can't, I see you, right? <laughs> uh -huh. And for our, for our ancestors, like, that that should be enough. But you're not, I mean, you're real, obviously, but not here in my environment. And our brains uh -huh. don't recognize that. 
Interesting. Do you, do you think there's a time in the future where these won't really be stressors anymore or as, as much of a stressor before we turn into yeah, robots great, at least? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, yes. And um, so individually, let me, let me answer this in two ways. Individually, I think that we all have the capability of overriding and change, making these changes for ourselves. Do I think that um, they will be passed on in, in, in terms of like pass on to our offspring and like actually evolving? Um, yeah, in probably another hundred thousand years or so, we'll be we'll be at the point where we should have been for this environment. Now, what our environment looks like a hundred thousand years from now is anyone's guess. Right. But what's what's happened is that as humans, we've removed ourselves from any kind of real natural selection. So we don't die. Like if you bomb on a on stage, you don't die. You carry on. And so there's no real strong pressure to change our brains to say, oh, well, guess you should, guess you really should fear that or you shouldn't fear that. Um, and that's, that's great, right? You should, I hope you don't die of, of fear um, or of all these irrational fears. But it does mean that there's no pressure to really eliminate them from our, from our population. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, and it's very, very interesting too. And I'm, <clears throat> I, I'm happy that you don't want people to die from that fear. <laughs> That's good. But, but at some point in time, uh, you know, don't you have to kind of unravel that fear? If one is to be fearless, they have to kind of face that fear and then yeah. uh, take apart its components and see how to mitigate their response in, you know, in, in, despite that fear right so how does right. one how does one become fearless what what does one have to do because you, you yeah know. great great question and and this is this is a really long response so let me start by breaking down the, the easy part first sure. the easy part is don't be fearless fearless is a terrible thing to be right but fearing less i'm putting the less in parentheses now that's the goal so being fearless like walking out in front of a greyhound bus terrible idea right? like don't don't do dumb things because you have no fear. That's me swaying at the top of a, you know, of a tree. Um, bad choices. But separating out true fear, what you actually should fear, viruses, you know, pandemics, things that you, that you are outside of your control, honestly. There are some things that, that deserve our fear. Tigers, you know, but other people, other races, those elicit stress responses, those elicit fears. Other people that think differently from us are uh, creating a variety that we're not going to have enough. That's, that's the hoarding behavior you're talking about. Like, oh my gosh, there's a stressor. We must grab all the resources for us. No, those, those are fears that we need to address and deal with and understand the underlying physiology and, and drivers of that behavior. So the short answer <laughs> to a much longer, longer question is that um, it's a process. And unfortunately, what people are looking for is a magic pill or I'm going to do this for 21 days and then I'll be cured, right? And then I'll be fearless. And the reality is, no, 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 this is an ongoing, everyday step back, take a look when you're feeling that stress response, when you're feeling that heart racing and your, your breath shortening going, <sighs> taking that deep breath and going, wait a second, is this my instinct kicking in? Is there an actual tiger that's about to eat me? Is this serving me or is this something that I need to overcome and calm myself and use my rational brain to think about? Mm. And that takes a lot of practice and it is ongoing. <laughs> Not the it, answer you wanted, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it, no, it's, it's actually perfect. I love it because yeah. it's a very intentional way to address fear. And it's not just like you said, it's not becoming fearless to where you're fearless where you right. just walk out in front of a Greyhound bus because you don't have any fear, right? That's going to get you killed. Yep. But to fear yep. less is a calculated approach to um, should I fear this? It, it's, it's intentional in, in the sense that you're thinking about whether or not you actually should fear things like race or even at, at some point things like getting up in front of a crowd and speaking because Absolutely. is it going to kill you? Or, or right. you know, And I guess you could do a cost and, and benefit um, analysis of sorts. You could do a pros and cons. So what if what if I do bomb? What's going to what's going to be the the worst possible thing that can happen to me? Versus what's going to happen if I walk out in front of this bus, right? And so right. you become intentional right. in in what you choose to fear and what you don't. Yeah, and I'll, I'll caution you with that because um, Tim Ferriss I think talks about fear setting and like what is the worst thing that happens, mm -hmm. right? 
And I think because we're not rational creatures, we'll say, we'll get to the point where like, well, we bomb in front and then my boyfriend breaks up with me and then I end up depressed and I did, I'm like, you go to this whole big one. Sure. And it, it's easy to create a story. We always, and, and our brains are programmed for this, right? We, we latch on to the negative because it's the negative that helped us to survive. If we didn't pay attention to those negative things, we died. Mm-hmm. So we're really, really adept at understanding all of the negative things. What I will flip and, and flip the narrative on here is what's the best thing that could happen as a result? And if we can focus more on that, instead of saying, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, the worst thing that can happen is always that you're going to die because you can ultimately get there through any, <laughs> any path, right? Sure. But the best thing that could happen is, okay, well, I do terrible and I learn something and I have an empathetic moment and I get coaching and I feel better about myself. And, I, you know, there's a thousand different pathways that you can take, but we're immediately drawn to what's the worst case scenario instead of saying, wow, I things could go really well. And then what does that look like? Some of that stuff's passed down through generations and stuff, though, too, right? Like, even when you talk about, uh, like, fear of other races and stuff like that, you know, that kind of thing could be passed down from parents, grandparents, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, too. And you kind of have to think it out on your own and make your own opinion of the whole scenario to see, to, yes. to you know, to know if you should fear this or not. Yeah, so you make a, you made, you raise a really good point there. And, and especially with fear of the other. So this is one of the instincts that I talk about. This is actually a biological instinct. Um, so biologically, we are programmed from the day we are born to when some, when we see somebody who doesn't look like us or act like us or operate under the same rules and regulations as us, we have a stress response. Because think about what that meant for our ancestors. You're surrounded by people that look like you, that acted like you, that operated under the same rules and regulations as you. And somebody who didn't look like you wasn't coming over to borrow a cup of sugar, right? They were, they were literally there to kill you, steal your resources, whatever it was. So we still have this stress response when we see the other. Mm. Now, that can be culturally reinforced for sure. And it often is. But it's our job to recognize, wait a second, hold up, just because I'm feeling this stress response right now. And you may not even feel it. But I promise you, I can prick your finger and take a, take a blood sample. You'll have cortisol <laughs> just pumping through your veins, right? So recognizing that and going, wait a second. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of techniques actually to to overcome specific fears. So like fear of the other, for example, um, is it, it, mostly an empathy gap. It's because we don't hang out with people outside of our own race or religion or political viewpoint or whatever it is. We we like people who are similar to us, um, and that's biologically driven. So the one thing that you can do is actually put yourself out there, like spend time reading books by by authors that don't think like you, you know, attending services, church services or, or um, synagogue or mosque services, experiencing other people's world and inviting them into your own. So that you start to recognize that your perspective isn't the only perspective or ne- necessarily the right perspective, but that's an instinct of ours to believe that what we know is correct and the only way and the right way. Mm. one has to challenge themselves indeed and it will not be comfortable yes <laughs> at all at all yes but will it kill you <laughs> so before we move on rebecca i found it interesting that you mentioned snakes and <laughs> and, and crows but snakes in this general sense because i i knew that or at least it's my understanding that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, since you have studied evolution so thoroughly, that we have such a fear of snakes because it was, um, it, well, because they could bite us. But it also provided us with a sense of patterns because you could see this slithery little thing in grass or in other surfaces, rocky areas, dirt, whatever the case may be. And we had a sense of patterns because we had to watch out for these things that might bite and, and make us sick and possibly even kill us. Um, first of all, confirm or deny whether that's even true. <laughs> and, and, and second, and second, how does, how does that sense of patterns play into our, our modern world as far as sensing danger? Yes, kind of. Okay. Can I get that answer? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, our brains love categories, right? I, it, and, and shortcuts. And that's really what we're talking about with fear is, is this reliance on shortcuts. So anything that's slithery or 
scary, like, or, you know, we, we generalize. If it's slithering through the grass, it's a snake and it's dangerous and that's it um, for our brains. That's the immediate thing because we don't want to take the time. If you had to, to stop and think, is that roughly in the bushes? Is that, is that a bird or is it a tiger? Right? If you're doing that, mm. you're dead. Like you're eating, it's gone, it's over. So we, we categorize very, um, very broadly. And it's actually, if you've ever um, seen a magician do something with like, you add numbers, you do this, and then you, you say, okay, think about um, a color and a tool. What do you think about? Red hammer. Yeah, did you? I had blue okay, hammer, but yeah. <laughs> Close. All right. Fair enough. And, and, and part of the reason that, that this works so well on, on so much, I didn't obviously set it up very well, but is because our brains categorize. And so the, the number one color for our brains to think of is red. Red is mm. the color. Um, and for the category of tools, you know, you've got wrenches and you've got hammers and you've got screwdrivers. It's just a oh, hammer makes it, that's a tool. And so we have these really general categories that our brain relies on for quick recall. And part of what we need to do with our, with our fears is to say, whoa, stop the shortcut, right? Is this an important shortcut to have because it actually is a tiger or is this a shortcut that I need a little bit longer circuitous path to determine whether or not I need to be having a stress response? Mm. Very interesting. The snakes, snakes, it turns out there's a lot of great snakes out there. We, I love snakes. And I, it, and yet I say that, and yet I still get a stress response every time I see one uh-huh. and I have to like, <gasps> okay, is it, nope, it's good. I think we're good. Right. I have <laughs> right. to, I, yeah. I have to go through that still. So uh-huh. those instincts are really powerful. My, that, my, my a- wife's stress response for that is just burn the house down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's interesting yeah. though. I, I saw a snake cutting grass yesterday. And it was, mm-hmm. I was, I had the weed eater in my hand, right? I had my boots <laughs> on. I had, I had pants, I had boots. No, no, the, the snake made it out okay. There was no harm Good. done to the snake, okay? But I had the same response. And a yeah. little bitty, a little bitty snake. And I got my phone out to make sure it wasn't a, a copperhead or something else, you know, yep. that was going to, that was going to be harmful. Uh, but the, my initial response was, whoa. And he was yep. on the ground in front of me. And like I said, I had basically a weapon in my hand where I just hit, right. the, hit the throttle and I could have shred him <laughs> to pieces. But yeah, yep. I was the one that jumped back. And yep. so that, that's a very interesting point that fear has that just that innate quality within us. It's a, it's a natural response that that little bitty snake might, in fact, kill me, which is irrational. It is. And yet, you know, and this is one of the things that I, I want to be very clear about, because I think it's really easy to, to take these fears and then justify racism or justify, well, it's biological. Yes. And it is still valid and important that we have to override some of this, right? Yeah. It is up to us to consciously be better than our, than our biology, because that to me is what separates out humans from every other animal is that we have the ability to step back and say, wait, is this how I should behave? Is this the moral thing to do? Is this the right thing to do? Um, and and I don't think that we always do that. So, Interesting. so, so bravo to you for, for not just decapitating the snake. I know, right? Because I very easily could have. Yep. Just, just going to be clear about that. This conversation could have went in a different direction if you would have said you <laughs> cut him up. I know. I'd have like, done. It, it, you know, I know. That's what I was thinking. It probably would have ended. But. No, no. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have blamed you. you know? And that's the thing. I think, I think we have to recognize that we are all human. Like we mm. all have. It's not our fault. But that doesn't mean that we can't be better. Right. Um, so it's it's a it's one of those. Are we all biased? Yes. Do we all have these awful instincts? Yes. That doesn't make us bad people. That makes us people, and it makes us obligated and responsible to to do better. Yeah, and that's where it, it could go off into a touchy subject when you start talking about the biology of of things like tribalism, for instance, and yeah. how you know the, how that was a. a a quality that we had an internal instinct to some degree for survival, but because we're conscious beings, we grow past that. And I think that, you know, of course evolution hasn't stopped. It it continues on with us, especially in the sense of that we're trying to become better people. And we're consciously aware that we can Mm -hmm. do better than what our ancestors passed down to us. And that's how we're going to evolve into the future. And uh, taking that track kind of, you know, it, it, helps us to get past that old uh, tribalism that was so ingrained within our instincts for, for survival purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. I love Absolutely. it. 
So if if we could, Rebecca, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about language. Yeah. Ooh. I, I you you have a great grasp on language. I can tell, you know. It, <laughs> oh man, I don't know. <laughs> I believe it so far from from speaking with you, but but I also know that as a speaker, as a keynote speaker, you have to have a pretty good idea at least on how to use language in order to uh, shift hearts and minds, right? You have to capture right. people in your audience in order to get something across. And so if you could talk about language and how it affects our internal behavior at first. Let me, um, yeah, let me respond first to, to what you said, because I think, I think I, and I don't want to miscredit this, but I think Maya Angelou said, people won't remember what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the biggest take home. Anytime I'm having a conversation, it's how am I leaving my audience? How am I leaving this person that I'm speaking with feeling? Yeah. Because the words can be irrelevant. Now they're not <laughs> because certainly, you know, words are incredibly powerful and the way we use them and the context in which we use them are really powerful. But so is our body language. So is the way we carry our faces and our smiles and our interactions and the questions that we ask and our curiosity of the other person. So, um, so all that to say, uh, how do, how does language affect the way our, our relationships internally? Was that the question? Yeah, basically. <laughs> how, how, does, how yeah. does it guide us? How does it dictate basically our behavior, the, the language yeah. that we have? Mm-hmm. Great question. Great question. So um, in order to answer that, I, I want to tell you about a study that's one of my favorite studies of all time. And it was a, a group of housekeepers that was split into two different groups. And one group was told nothing. The other group was told that they were meeting the Surgeon General's requirements for exercise. And that was the only difference between the two groups. So they all wore those nifty dissy wristwatches, which tracked, you know, steps and exertion rate and all of that. And that's factor reality analysis. They're all kept on diets. That's factor reality analysis. And yet after four weeks time, the groups that had been told that they were meeting the Surgeon General's requirement for exercise, that they believed that, lost weight, lower blood pressure, lower body fat, lower waist to hip ratio, lower anxiety, like all kinds of health benefits after four weeks. And there was no difference other than the story that they were telling themselves. So the first time that I read that study, I'll be honest, I was like, you are an athlete. (laughs) But I also (laughs) am like a bit of a skeptic, right? I'm a bit of a skeptic. And I'm like, there's no way, there's no way that this is just a voice that that is the language that we're using about the story that we're telling about ourselves. Um, And it turns out the more research that I did, the more I realized, wow, that voice, that language is incredibly powerful in the way it drives not only our relationships with ourselves, but in the relationships that we have with others. So I hope that that gets at your, at your question a little bit. Those stories are so powerful and, um, and listening to them, actually, if you, if you're ever quiet enough and still enough long enough to to listen to that voice, first of all, it's it's uncomfortable, but Mm -hmm. second of all, that voice comes up and she or he will almost immediately be negative. Like, you're failing at this. You're not good enough at that. You are an imposter. Oh, you forgot about this. Don't forget to do this. And there's this running list of voices that are telling you all these negative things. And again, that's your brain helping you to survive, right? So when we are quiet long enough and when we meditate or when we breathe or we're just quiet long enough to hear the voice, we get an opportunity to say, hey, that's another story I need to tell. Go away. If you're anything like me, she comes back like three seconds later, right? <laughs> and then you have another opportunity. But this is this is part of the issue is that like we never listen, truly listen to all of the the language and the stories that are being told internally. And when we take time to do that, we have the opportunity to say that's a useful story, or that's not one that I want, or that's one that needs changing. Yeah. That's very interesting. In in the mental health field in which I work, we talk a lot about, well, we, we work with self-talk and, and we get down to how is one speaking to oneself, right? And so disputation is one of our major interventions. I need to be yep. able to dispute mm-hmm. those negative voices and and argue with that voice and say, no, I, I am worth it. I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to you know, input the harmful behavior in there mm-hmm. and that is kind of the same thing that we, we can shift even a if it's a neutral voice to a more positive voice would you agree to that that we can 
we can shift our self-talk to actually drive ourselves into bigger and better places. And that language that we use internally will affect our behavior so that we can actually thrive and not just survive. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's so, it's such a powerful driver. Um, and, and I want to, to give nod and, and acknowledge the fact that the, the disruptions in mental health have been massive in the past hundred years and they're growing exponentially. Um, and, and a lot of that is brain chemistry. And yes, we need to change those stories. And yes, it's possible to do that. And yes, sometimes we need extra help for that. So, um, if you're sitting at home and listening to this and going, well, I just have to change my story and you're getting frustrated because you can't please seek help, right? Seek mm-hmm. external help that um, there are doctors that can help you with that. There are physiologists that can help you with that. Um, and and sometimes that's needed. So, Yeah. So if we can, let's, let's shift that to uh, interpersonal behavior, how we, how our language affects others around us. Yeah. And in, in speaking to myself, I've realized that how I, how I speak to myself, my own self-talk also kind of dictates at least to some degree how I talk to others around me. So if, mm-hmm. if I've, I've been through negative uh, time periods in my life and I, in looking back, I realized that I was talking bad to myself. My self-talk was very negative. It was down. It was that, that guy that you keep referring to over here, that voice that I had. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, he wasn't very nice to me for a long time. Yeah. And I noticed that, that in turn, I wasn't very nice to those around me because that was the experience that I had internally and it projected externally. And right. so, I, and I've learned that by talking to myself and loving myself, having compassion for myself also equals having compassion for others. And so as a leader and trying to be, uh, trying to fear less, um, how does that, that inter, interpersonal uh, language affect those around us? Yeah, that's huge. So, so what you're really talking about are these micro environments. So from an evolutionary behaviorist perspective, when you're negative and stressed out and, and mean to yourself, what you've created is an environment of stress, of scarcity, of, of competition where you're not good enough. And so you have to go out and sort of fight for everything that you can, you can get. So what that equates to is externally, when you're having communications with others, you see them as competition. You see them as, you know, uh, somebody who's going to reject you. You see them as threats rather than as this potential community, a space for belonging. Um, and so when your internal environment isn't healthy, you can't have external environments that are healthy either. So one of the things that, that I've heard before, and I, I wish I could claim that it was my own, but it's not, is is treating yourself like your best friend. Mm. So I, I often will take that voice and then pull her out of her and like personify that voice, put her down next to me and ask myself, how long would I hang out with that person? And if the answer is like, uh, not too long, then I need some work, right? I need some work here because that's the part of me that is going to come out externally to others. And I would never treat my best friend that way. Mm. So I can't be doing that to myself either. Right. Yeah. And this also kind of takes me to the next point about leadership versus authority. Um, how I speak to those, if, if I want to be a leader uh, amongst people, whether or not I have a position of authority or not, because personally in my day job, I'm a consultant. And so I, I learned that being a consultant, I have to move people without having direct authority over those people. And so there's a, there's a high measure of persuasion. There's a high measure of, you know, the language that I use has to be compelling to people to get them to want to, to do the way that, you know, do things the way that I want them to do without me being able to say you either do it or else. Right. And right. So it's, do you have any insight on language or I'm sorry, on uh, authority versus leadership and how those roles can differ, how they, how they coalesce, how they merge and uh, anything you got on, on that topic. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. So James, I think, I think you actually have the privilege of having a, a good opportunity there because to me being an authority probably means you're not a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're claiming authority, it's a dangerous game to be playing. Um, I, I try and walk in always as the non-expert because the reality is nobody wants to be told what to do. Yeah. We all see ourselves as independent beings with independent minds and we should, we are. So creating the community, creating a sense of belonging where we are, we, not I, but we are going to decide what's the best course forward what can we do together 
to get through this. Creating that cooperative community, that tribe, as it, as it were, mm. um, is one of the most powerful ways to overcome this, I'm your leader, this is how you're going to do it, and come with me or else. Because that, that sort of dictatorship, nobody responds to very well, especially male to male. Males compete for status. And so if you're coming in and suggesting to another male, this is how it's going to be done, that male now has to one-up you because he's not going to lose status. He's not going to lose face in front of all of his potential mates. I know this sounds absurd, but this is how our brains are thinking, right? <laughs> our brains are like, I have the opportunity to mate with her. No, I will not. I will not, you know, like I will not let him come in and tell me what to do. And so we, we have to adopt this cooperative type of, of um, language to, to move the masses forward and to say, look, it's not us versus, or, or sorry, it's not me versus you or you versus me. It's us versus them. So I'm a huge fan of creating an, an exterior enemy. And I know that us mm. versus them is usually used in a negative context, right? But for me, you can have an abstract them. So them could be um, poor customer service. We are going to fight like hell. Sorry, I hope I can say that on here. We're going to fight, right? We're going to fight like mad together against this common enemy. Mm-hmm. Because I'd love to tell you that your brains are loving and harmonic and peaceful and they all just want to get along. They don't. They need a common enemy. And you as an authority don't want to be that common enemy among the people. What you want to do is come in and say, I'm no expert, but I see over here poor customer service. Do you think we can rally around that and do, or, or I see over here poor mental health, or I see over here, um, there's a, a great story that I often tell about going into an ER. I, I'm a bit of a klutz and I broke my foot. I walk into an ER and there's, there's a maintenance worker who's working on the door and I'm super bored. I obviously like to talk and I asked him what he was doing. And for all intents and purposes, he should have told me, um, fixing the door. But instead what he said was, well, ma'am, at this hospital, it's our mission to reduce patient pain. Um, so when, when patients are pushed to the door, the door sticks and it jars them a little bit. So I'm just here reducing patient pain. Mm. Yeah. You know, how powerful is it when right. your surgeons, your maintenance workers, your anesthesiologists, your nurses, you all have that common enemy, pain. Mm-hmm. And so everybody can get behind that. I think for our brains, Um, A true leader is going to, A, create a very clear common enemy external to the group, which reduces all the squabbles internally, Mm. right? Because you're all fighting against the same thing. And they're going to admit that they're not the expert. So walking in and saying, look, I'm not the expert, which is a place of deep discomfort for all of us because we like being the expert. But walking in and saying, I'm not the expert. I'm open to hearing. What actions do you think we should take? And being quiet and still enough and having pregnant pauses long enough to actually get those ideas is going to be the best way to move, move a, a force. Yeah. That, that's a very, very interesting story there too, with the, the, uh, the janitor, the maintenance worker, whomever that was, that was, uh, if, if it has to do with the language that he used, his language yeah. actually moved you enough to internalize that story and then to share it with us. And that's a very powerful thing because he was a part of a team and that team was Thank based you. around that team was based around a narrative, which was given by language. And that language is very important. And once again, it reminds me that the language that I use has to be that of a compelling nature and not of a look staring down my nose, pointing my finger type of nature or else I'm going to shut people out. And he could have very well just said, ma'am, I'm just fixing this door because I am a maintenance guy. And that's, right. my, that's my only role. Well, it kind of comes but back he, to how, how you make people feel. And sometimes it's important to not just keep things dumbed down. You know, even a simple scenario as far as fixing a door, you can make that something much deeper. Yeah. Exactly. Give, yeah. give true purpose, right? True mm-hmm. meaning to everybody's work, to everybody's journey. Um, and that, that truly empowers the individual to feel part of something bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that helps me is to be mindful of my current situation, to be mindful of the present moment. And it kind of keeps me in my space. It keeps me grateful. It helps me Mm -hmm. to remember my place in life because if I am mindful of of where I'm at and and the fact that I'm alive, I'm usually using a more gracious attitude and therefore gracious language. So Rebecca, how much do you practice mindfulness, if at all, and what kind of benefit (laughs) does it have? 
I like to say that I practice mindfulness all day, every day, but yeah. it's a complete lie. Uh-huh. You know, I, I try. I absolutely try. It is my goal to be as mindful as possible at all times because we as humans have been given this incredible gift of the frontal lobe where, you know, the frontal lobe is where we're making those conscious cognitive choices where we're able to be mindful and not reactionary based on some of our older, older parts of our brain. Mm-hmm. And so it's my goal to be mindful all the time. If you're asking about like meditation practices, 10 minutes a day. That's all I do. That's all I do. Um, but that hasn't stopped me from pausing in the middle of the day and going, ooh, feeling a stress response, not feeling like I'm doing what I should be doing. Hang on. What am I afraid of right now? Mm-hmm. Like just asking myself that question. And, and that's, a, that's a practice that I invite everybody to do is taking a pause in the middle of the day and asking yourself the question, what am I afraid of right now? Is it rational? And why am I behaving the way I am? My my partner will tell you that um, I I can be really difficult sometimes. I'm very driven, and I go and I go and I go and I go. And sometimes it's like just stop, stop. Like think about where you're doing. Think about how you're you're enacting this drive and how it's affecting other people around you. Mm. And sometimes it just needs to be. I'm afraid. Okay, I'm afraid I'm going to fail. Why am I afraid that I'm going to fail? Is it going to no no? I need to I need to pause. I need to be mindful of who I'm around, what is truly important to me, how I'm treating those that are truly important to me. It's um, it it is an ongoing challenge. Yeah. So, so your meditation is more about thinking about, like, kind of weeding out negative and things of that nature versus trying to think about nothing. Oh yeah, this is a super important point. Thank you for saying that. So, um, my my ten minute meditation in the mornings, I actually use an app. I cheat like a hundred percent because I cannot sit still for, for 10 minutes. I, I use the calm app. There's mm-hmm. space. There's 10% happier. I, there's a million out there that are great. Yeah. I just like it because I press play in the morning and it walks me through a, a 10 minute meditation. Mm-hmm. One of the, the biggest misconceptions that I hear when it comes to meditation is that you have to clear your mind. And to me, that will never happen. It will never, this will always be coming. And then that's where people quit. Cause they're like, I can't do it. I, I can't meditate. I just, I'm always hearing things. I'm like, no, no, no. If you're hearing the voice, you're doing it. Like that's the whole goal of meditation is to like hear what's going on in the background of your head, all those subconscious thoughts so that you can adjust them or change them or ignore them or start to, to come back to the breath or to the frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, if there are people out there that can completely clear their mind, like Bravo, you have reached Nirvana as far as I'm concerned. I'm still working on that. Yeah. But yep. don't feel like you're failing, right? Don't feel right. like you're failing if, if your mind isn't clear. Uh-huh. Yeah, mindfulness practice to me is just being aware of that stream of consciousness that is happening, not really trying to fight it so much, trying to just notice it, pay attention to it, be curious about it. And once again, like you said, Rebecca, is see where you can fine-tune that stream of consciousness consciousness to better suit your lifestyle, to better suit your needs, to be a better person. Like if I can check in, which is also what it sounds to me like what you're doing when you check in, what am I afraid of? Where am I at? To me, I have to be careful about, okay, what am I anxious about right now? And how is it affecting those around me? Because the way it's affecting me. And so if I can check in and say, okay, I'm anxious about this right now. um, I can fine tune that, try to turn down the knob a little bit, try to turn down that knob so that it doesn't affect me in a negative way. That way I can be more present in that moment and be a better person to not just those, those around me, but also myself. And so Perfect. mindfulness is a, is a, it's, it's so important for me because otherwise I am all over the, I'm a squirrel. I'm a squirrel running around. <laughs> being, I think we all are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all are. I mean, we're living in a world with massive distractions. Yeah. And our instincts, I, we're, we're informed right? The more information, the better. And mm. that was true for our ancestors. And today, you could spend all day on Google and never reach the bottom of the internet. So, um, yeah, that's, mindfulness is super important. Yeah, absolutely. Rebecca, we really appreciate you coming on with us today, giving us your valuable time on this Saturday morning in the midst of quarantine. I don't know what else you'd be doing, but it's probably something, you know, You'd be amazed at how busy I am. Actually, it's crazy. I don't, I don't know, but, but this is, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you guys both for having me on. I I hope that this is useful to you all and to your listeners. And, um, 
you know, feel free to reach out if there's ever anything else I can do for you guys. Yeah, it's, it's definitely useful. And I know it will be to our listeners as well. We love uh, soaking up knowledge and experience. You know, experience is just so valuable that when you can see other people's perspectives and gain from it, then you really have a pretty good grasp on what you're doing in this life. So if you could let everybody know where they can find you, where they can yeah. follow you. and Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so the easiest place is RebeccaHeiss.com. That's H-E-I-S-S. Um, or you can find me on YouTube. Uh, I am on the Twitter and the Instagram at Dr. Rebecca Heiss. Um, or just Google my name. You will find me, I promise. Um, please follow, you know, reach out to me if there's anything I can do to help. Uh, and yeah, don't be a stranger. Absolutely. That's awesome. Especially if you want to know more about crows, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Which, absolutely. Which is absolutely awesome. I've never met anyone, honestly, never, <laughs> who studied crows. It's especially yeah, went it's to another thing. went to another country. It's awesome though. I love it. I, uh, I, I mean, I, it's I'm, a claim to fame. Right. <laughs> yeah. I might be reaching out just because I have a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, did, I didn't want to take a whole I, podcast to talk about crows, but I had, yeah. I had a few questions I had to ask. We can do another one. We can do another one. It's, uh, it's worth it. There's, there's a lot of good, a lot of good crow stories. I, I could tell Colt is burning with questions <laughs> about crows. So. Screw your we'll mindfulness we'll stuff. <laughs> Tell me about those winged creatures. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Rebecca. It's my pleasure. Be safe, guys. Uh, Keep doing great work and be fearless. Thank you. you. Appreciate it. All right. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Thanks again to Rebecca Heiss and thank you, CEP listener. Remember that word of mouth is like a random mutation to the evolutionary process for us. So don't forget to tell your friends and fam about the great variety you hear right here on the CEP. Please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you consume the podcast that you love so much so that you can keep the variety coming straight to your ear holes with the automaticity. Also on that note, when you go to Apple Podcast, it would help us immensely if you would give us that five-star rating while you're there to show your love for the CEP. And speaking of love, come on, you know what's coming. We love it when you give us all of your love on the socials, when in fact you do give us all of your love on the socials. So please give us your love on the socials. And be sure to visit the launching pad for all things cerebral at thecepodcast.com. And of course, if you need to contact us, you can do that at cerebral at thecepodcast.com. Also remember that we now have CEP merch at bijack.com slash CEP. So get online and get your CEP gear today. That's all I've got, folks. So until next time, be sure to keep those big, beautiful brains of yours nice and warm out there. See ya.